Before we begin, I would like to let the wonderful Jewish History Podcast audience know that on one of my other podcast channels, Torah 101, an intellectual's introduction to Torah, that podcast has recently been focusing on the history of Torah. The last five episodes are all about the backstory of the Torah and the history of the writing of the oral Torah and the development of Torah from Moses to the Mishnah, the history of rabbinic law and rabbinic edicts, to really try to understand how Torah got from where it started to the Mishnahite era. And please, God, we will continue to pursue that question until we arrive to the state of Torah in the present time. So I thought that it may be of interest to you because it has been pursuing a history angel, so check it out, Torah 101. And I may do one or two episodes on the Jewish History Podcast on that subject as well, have not decided yet. However, I want to give a disclaimer that listening to Torah 101, listening to that podcast channel, if you listen to it in its entirety, it will leave you with no doubt that the Torah is true and it's authentic. And therefore, if you don't want to be convinced of the veracity of Torah, maybe you should try to avoid that particular channel. As always, my name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. I work for Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. I'm actually speaking to you from the gorgeous Torch Center in Houston, Texas. And my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. This special edition of the Jewish History Podcast will be released on the art site on the anniversary of the passing of Chacham Ovadia. May his soul be elevated in heaven and may he petition the heavenly courts on behalf of the betterment of the entire Jewish people. In part one of our discussion of Chacham Ovadia, we discussed his complete Torah mastery. In part two, I want to explore his role as a rabbi as a chief rabbi, as a halachic arbiter, a posek, and of course as an influential national and even international and even political figure. And finally, I want to explore perhaps his most impactful legacy, the mission that he strove for his entire life, the restoration of the crown of Sephardic Jewry to its previous Glory. This axiom, Lahazir Atarali to restore the crown to its former glory, was Chacham Ovadia's oft quoted motto and his life mission and the unifying theme of his life and his accomplishments. This motto had widespread implications. It had religious and halachic meanings. It also described Chacham Ovadio's efforts to better the state of Sephardic Jewry in the political sphere, in the economic and social and cultural realms as well. As a rabbi and innovative halakhic authority, Chacham Ovadia restored the crown to its former glory by standardizing the halakhic norms of the Sephardic world to conform with the rulings of the Bet Yosef, of Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, as a religious icon, Chacham Avadia invested Herculean efforts 
to encourage Sephardic Jews to come home, to come back to Torah, and to not be drawn to the newfangled heresy and secularism. And thereby he sought to restore the crown to its previous glory. Chachamavadya encouraged entire generations of young Sephardic yeshiva students to become Torah scholars and to author Torah books and to achieve great heights in their scholarship and in their study. Socially and culturally, the movement spawned by Chachamavadya sought to restore the crown to its former glory, to imbue the many Sephardic communities with pride in their illustrious heritage and traditions. Moreover, this motto referred to the establishment of independent Sephardic religious infrastructure to build schools, to build yeshivos, to build shuls in the glorious and ancient traditions of the Sephardic world. The tagline of the political party Shas that Chacham Avadia spearheaded was to restore the crown to its former glory, to its previous luster. And on all accounts, Chacham Ovadia's efforts were a wild, unbridled success. So let's talk about his accomplishments as a rabbi and as a leader. Before he was a nationally and internationally famous personality, Ravavadya had a storied and legendary career as a trailblazing rabbi and as an uncompromising and fearless Dayan rabbinic judge, both in Israel and in all places in Cairo, Egypt. In 1947, Chachamavadya moved with his family to Egypt to head the yeshiva and the Beit Din, the rabbinic court in Cairo. Now, of course, the Jewish community in Cairo was ancient. It had existed for 2,400 years, dating back to the destruction of the first temple. But of late, there had been a rise in affluence in the community, coupled with a long-term spiritual decline of the community, and they wanted to bring in a young, dynamic rabbi to help reverse that trend. And they hired Chachamavadia to move from Israel to Egypt. Now, this decision to move was largely caused by the dire financial straits of the Yosef family. But ultimately, his tenure in Egypt provided him with invaluable leadership experience. It taught him how to deal with naughty, difficult challenges and with recalcitrant communities. In Egypt, he had to contend with the secular Jewish establishment that was hostile to his teaching of Torah, and they opposed his institution of rigorous halachic standards. When he arrived in Egypt, he found gross violations of halacha. The use of microphones, for example, on Shabbat and Yom Tov by chazanim, by cantors, and by rabbis was common. Rabbis would often attend funerals of dignitaries in churches, which is not halachically permissible. It's not halachically okay to walk into a church, which by our definition is a house of idolatry. But it was the standard practice in 
that community because they wanted to maintain communal peace and they wanted to not stir the pot too much, but it was a violation of halacha. The kosher system in Egypt was also rife with corruption, with ignorance, with incompetence, and much of what was passed off as being kosher was in fact not reliably so. The shochtim, the ritual slaughterers, they wouldn't check their knives properly before they slaughtered. They would pass off camel meat as being kosher. Of course, camel is one of the animals that's not kosher. They would not do the proper post-mortem investigation, autopsy in the animal. They would work on festivals. And facing all of these areas of halachic violations, Chacham remained a steadfast stalwart, aggressively and determinedly opposing and trying to root out these practices. And he refused to corrupt or bend the halacha even in the face of tremendous resistance. His uncompromising, resolute adherence to halacha raised the ire of his detractors. So Chamavadi would go and investigate, for example, the kashrut, the legitimacy of the kosher certification of various slaughterers, and he would disqualify the ones who were not doing a good job. And one of them actually hired a group of Arab hoodlums to assassinate this rabbi, and he was saved from that in miraculous fashion. Another butcher pointed a gun at Chacham Ovadia after the Chacham insisted that he hire a full-time mashkiach, a full-time kosher overseer for his store. And the straw that broke the camel's back, no pun intended, was when the Jewish community-run hospital was found to be serving non-kosher food to its Jewish patients, who were unaware of that, and Chacham tried to change that, but they were resistant. It's much more expensive to pay for kosher food. And ultimately, he resigned from his official rabbinic post over the community's unwillingness to address this issue. Chacham first foray into the rabbinate indeed ended prematurely, but I would imagine that the experience steeled him against capitulating to public pressure and criticism, and it helped him hone his leadership philosophy. In addition, I would imagine that dealing with such a community in such a visceral way reinforced his recognition that some of his Sephardic brethren had lost their mojo, and there was a pressing need to restore the crown to its former glory. Chacham Avadi's tenure in Egypt was dramatic in other ways as well. This time when he's there, 1947, 1948, this is coinciding with the founding of the State of Israel. And of course, with the War of Independence that was fought between Israel and Egypt and various other Arab nations. So tensions between Israel and Egypt were heightened and comes along Chacham Avadi, and he's moved from Israel, from Palestine, and the Egyptian authorities accuse him of being a Zionist spy. 
He is being watched. He's being followed. They bring him in for questioning. The authorities raid his home once he was jailed overnight. And even once he was mugged by members of the Muslim Brotherhood while traveling on a train. In one humorous incident that happened during the Festival of Sukkot during the War of Independence, the authorities arrested him because they accused him of directing Israeli fighter pilots where to bomb because Chamovadia had erected a sukkah on his roof. And they said, oh, that sukkah, it's, it's, you're trying to show the Israeli pilots where to drop their bombs. Oh, and when you were shaking your lulav, you were directing them where to go. You were signaling to them. Ultimately, he was able to convince the judge that it was nothing more than a religious activity. And Chachamavadya was nevertheless told that you must dismantle your sukkah within the next seven days, which of course worked out well because Sukkot is a seven-day festival. After his resignation, Chachamavadi moved back to the newly minted state of Israel. Of course, Egypt did not allow direct travel to Israel, so he had to go via Italy and make Aliyah from there. And the family settled in Jerusalem in the neighborhood of Bet Yisrael in a small two-room apartment. And Chachamavadia resumed his teaching and speaking at various shuls. And he also joined the elite kolel, the elite institution of advanced Talmudic study called Midrash Benetzion, which included a legendary cadre of scholars that would go on to long and storied rabbinic careers. So other members of this kolel included Shmuel Rezavsky, who would later serve as a yeshiva of the famed Panovich yeshiva in Bnei Brak, famous rabbis Diane Fisher, Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Arbach, Rabbi Tzal Zolti, who would go on to be the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, and of course, Rabbi Shalom Shvadron, the legendary Magid of Jerusalem. And once back in Israel, he began his career in various positions, in various posts, in the rabbinate, and as a member of various Bateidin, various rabbinic courts. For a short period, Chamavadi served as a Dayan, as a justice of the Beit Din of Petach Tikva. And the family, in fact, moved to Petach Tikva in 1956. Several years later, they moved back to Jerusalem, and he joined a different Beit Din. And in 1965, Chachamavadia was elected to join the Beit Din Hagadol, the supreme rabbinical court of the land. And this was very unusual because Chachamavadia at the time was 44 years old and he was joining the land's highest rabbinical court and all of his peers were many decades his senior, but this was a testament of Chacham Ovadia's otherworldly scholarship and stature and esteem. He would retain his position on the court until 1987 when he was forced to depart from the court due to his affiliation with a political party with Shas and more about that in just a bit. In the early 1960s, there was a groundswell to draft Ravovadia to run as the Sephardic 
chief rabbi of Israel. And at that time, and still today, there were two concurrent chief rabbis, an Ashkenazi chief rabbi, a Sephardic chief rabbi, and they would serve five-year terms. But there were no term limits. And in 1963, there was an election, and the incumbent was the sitting chief rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Nisim, and Chacham Avadia was a little bit uncomfortable running against an incumbent, and he refused to run. Of course, later on, he would indeed run and serve for 10 years as the chief rabbi, as the Rishon Letzion, from 1973 until 1983. In 1968, Rav Avadia ran and was elected as chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, which was traditionally a stepping stone to become chief rabbi of the state. And just as was true with the state at large, the city of Tel Aviv had at the time two concurrent chief rabbis, an Ashkenazic chief rabbi, a Sephardic chief rabbi, and Rav Avadia was elected alongside Ashkenazic chief rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who served simultaneously as the chief rabbi of the IDF. Chacham Avadia had very ambitious plans for his role as chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. In his inauguration speech, he pledged to ensure that kosher was being done properly in the city. He pledged to ensure that the religious infrastructure would be up to snuff. He pledged to oversee the marriage and life cycle officiation. He pledged to teach Torah to all. And this is exactly what he did. He would make spot inspections on the marketplaces to inspect stores. If he found any halachic kosher violations, he would pull the certification. He visited industrial factories and he inspected and upgraded the procedures to make sure that they were in line with halacha. He streamlined the processes of marriage and divorce and life cycle officiation, ensuring that the Ashkenazic and Sephardic couples were treated as per the custom of their respective communities. But most of all, he had a packed schedule of teaching Torah all day, all week, all year. He still traveled back to Jerusalem for a weekly lecture. He would have multiple daily lectures in Tel Aviv. Each Friday night, he would pray and speak at a different Tel Aviv synagogue. And of course, he still maintained his membership in the Supreme Rabbinical Court in Jerusalem. When a family member was concerned about the toll that it would take on him to have such a packed schedule, he replied with the words of the Mishnah, This is why I was created. In his tenure as chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, Rav Avadia truly set the standard as an exemplar of a city chief rabbi. But chief rabbi of Tel Aviv would not be his highest rabbinical post. In 1973, as we mentioned, Chacham Ovadia was elected Rishon Litzion, the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel, and his prominence, and his fame, and his prestige, and his impact would only grow from there. Chacham Ovadia had a unique halachic philosophy. As a posek, as a halachic arbiter, and in his voluminous halachic literature and responsa, he developed a unique and 
innovative approach to resolving halachic dilemmas and quandaries and to systemizing halachic practice. For one, his halachic philosophy was guided by and rooted in the Talmudic idiom, koach dehetera adif. It is greater to find leniency in halacha than to be stringent. Whenever there is a halachic uncertainty, it's easy to favor stringency. But only a veritable Torah giant can find the legitimate, lenient workarounds. It's so much easier to rule stringently. It covers your base. It's safer. To rule leniently, you have to have the broad shoulders to take on the responsibility that what you are permitting, what you are being lenient about is legitimate, is okay. And it's important to stress, Chamavadya strove to rule leniently, not because he did not view Torah prohibitions as severe, but because he was able to understand a given subject with such depth and breadth that he was able to suss out if there was legitimate room for leniency. And there are many, many examples of Ravavadya turning over every halachic stone to find leniency, provided, of course, that it was legit. Another hallmark of his halachic philosophy was his lifelong mission to try to unify the various Sephardic streams, the various Sephardic customs, the various Sephardic communities in the land under the rulings of Maram Bet Yosef of the Shulchan Aruch. Israel was quickly becoming the home of multitudes of Jews arriving from various different Muslim countries. You have Jews from Iraq, from Iran, from Persia, from Egypt, Morocco, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Yemen, and each one of them come with their own customs and their own halachic way of, of operating. Chamavadya sought to unify and streamline their halachic practices under the rulings of the Bet Yosef of Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Aruch. And he argued that the Bet Yosef's positions were universally accepted and endorsed by all the Sephardic giants over history. Moreover, his rulings are considered authoritative in the land of Israel. So even if, let's say, in Iraq, you follow the rulings of the Benish Chai, for example, once you're in Israel, you must follow the rulings of the Bet Yosef. And this approach actually proved quite controversial because for many Sephardic Jews, to go against the ruling of the Benish Chai was anathema, was sacrilege. And here, Chachamavadya is favoring the rulings of the Bet Yosef over the other Sephardic giant, the Benish Chai. And in fact, when Chachamavadya published his first work, Chazonovadya, some Iraqi Jews sought to have this book banned because in this book he ruled against the Benish Chai. 
And in another example of misplaced zealotry, a couple of rabble-rousers even burned the book. But Chacham Avadia actually held the Benishchai in the highest regard, and he testified that he never argued with the Benishchai before he studied the relevant Talmud and associated writings a minimum of 15 times. He was not going against the Benishchai willy-nilly, frivolously. He was doing it because he had the conviction that the halacha does not follow the Benishchai in that particular case. Rav Avadia's writing style and method of arriving at halacha decisions was also quite innovative and also somewhat controversial in some circles. When he would write a book on a various subject, he would consume all the available halachic literature on that subject, including contemporary books. And of course, he would read a book and have it all memorized. Rav Shmuel Vosner, a contemporary, he said that Chacham Avadi knows my books better than I know my books. And he would use all this amassed information and he would take this broad, comprehensive approach and use that as the basis of his halachic rulings as well. He would often delineate many, many, many sources on a given question, and he would highlight the merits of each argument, and he would reach his conclusion through the lens of all this literature, oftentimes siding with the majority. His detractors would argue, well, he knows it all, but he knows it on a very surface level, but that was not accurate. He was able to pinpoint to the good arguments and, of course, the bad arguments of each of the sources that he would present. So this whole method of arriving at a halakhic conclusion was quite innovative, but his books were great hits. The first volume of halakhic response that he published in 1955 won the prestigious Rav Cook Prize for Torah literature. In 1970, Chacham was awarded the Israeli Nobel Prize called the Israel Prize for rabbinic literature for all his great works. By the time he passed, he had published 50 books and left in manuscript form with enough material for the same amount of books to be published posthumously. Two of his sons, in fact, the current Rishon Letzion, the current chief rabbi, Rav Yitzchak Yosef, and Rabbi David Yosef, who is the chief rabbi of the Harnof neighborhood of Jerusalem, among the two of them, they have published over 50 books codifying their father's halachic rulings. On the seventh day of Cheshvan in 1973, by a vote of 81 to 68, Rav Avadia defeated the incumbent Rav Nisim and was elected to be the Rishon Lezion, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel. Thenceforth, he would forever be in the public spotlight. Although he would serve as chief rabbi for 10 years, in reality, he remained the dominant Sephardic rabbi in the country and indeed in the world until his passing in 2013. 
Now, in the early 1970s, the chief rabbinate and truthfully the state at large was embroiled in two massive halachic controversies. Perhaps some would characterize them as scandals. These two massive controversies served as a backdrop for Ravavadya's promotion to chief rabbi of the state. Now, in general, the matters of religion and state were always and still are quite tenuous. In the famous status quo agreement agreed upon at the founding of the state, David Ben-Gurion had given the rabbinate complete authority over matters of religion, including marriages and divorce and conversions. This arrangement had always been a recipe for conflagration. The secular majority is subject via the rabbinate to the religious minority. You could see them not loving it. And even today, this is a flashpoint of conflict, not only in Israel, but abroad, because the Israeli rabbinate does not recognize reform and conservative and even some orthodox conversions that are done abroad. The rabbinate has quite rigorous standards, and it may come as a surprise to people who were converted outside of Israel. They arrive to Israel, and their conversion is not recognized by the official state authority by the rabbinate. Now, proponents of this system argue that when you have a single universal standard that is quite strict, there is an invaluable benefit that there's never a dispute. If it's recognized by the gold standard of halakha, no one would quibble with its legitimacy and thus you don't have a situation where someone is recognized as a Jew and this neighbor goes to a different neighbor is not recognized as a Jew. If you are recognized, you are recognized universally. So this is still a hot-button issue today. But in the 1960s and early 1970s, this conflict erupted with two controversies that rocked the state and the rabbinate. The first case involves the conversion of one Helen Zeidman. She was a Christian who was enamored by Israel and by Judaism. And she moved to Israel and she began living on a kibbutz. But because she was not Jewish, when she wanted to marry a Jewish man, it had to be done outside of Israel because the rabbinate would not officiate an intermarriage. And several years later, she wanted to convert, but the rabbinate refused to convert her because she was not adhering to halacha at all. She was living on a completely non-religious kibbutz. She was not obeying the strictures of halacha. And undeterred, she went for a non-halachic reform conversion. And subsequently, she approached the interior ministry of the land to have her children be reclassified as Jews because of this conversion. But because this non-halachic conversion was not recognized by the state, her petition was rejected. But she didn't give up. And she went to the Supreme Court and she argued in front of the court, hey, you have to recognize my Jewishness. And this controversy escalated into a crisis 
that actually threatened to destabilize the government coalition. The religious Zionist party, Maftal, they threatened to quit the coalition if there's no resolution to this case. But a resolution did materialize. The day before the Supreme Court vote, Mrs. Zeidman, she had a quote-unquote orthodox conversion presided by the IDF chief rabbi, Rabbi Gorin, in a hastily assembled Beit Din. And in exchange for this conversion, she withdrew her petition to the Supreme Court and the Knesset coalition remained intact. And the solution apparently was reached and the crisis was avoided. But not really. Because if you're not going to recognize reform conversions because they're not halakhically legitimate, this was a sham, quote-unquote, orthodox conversion. And why is it being treated differently? Apparently, Rabbi Gorin seemed to have been making a mockery of the whole process. Now, for Ravavadya, this struck close to home. Rabbi Gorin was his colleague. Yet, for inexplicable reasons, he officiated at this quite spurious conversion, apparently for political reasons. The second controversy is known as the Langer case. In this story, Rabbi Gorin's dubious halachic dexterity manifested again, and this time it prompted Ravavadya to throw his hat into the race for chief rabbi of the whole country. Now, the background to this controversy of two siblings, Chanoch and Miriam Langer, and they were serving in the IDF. And their mother, Chava, she was originally married to one Avraham Barakovsky, who was a convert to Judaism. But she separated from her husband without a get, without a halachic document of divorce. And the rules are such that if a woman has a legitimate halachic marriage and she does not have a subsequent legitimate halachic divorce, well, that means that she's still a married woman. And now she goes without obtaining a halachic divorce and marries one Otto Langer and she bears these two children. So halachically, these children are known as mamzerim, meaning illegitimate bastards, and by Torah law, are not permitted to marry ordinary Jews. And that determination was already made in the 1950s. But in 1966, Hanoch Langer approached the Beit Din to try to find a halachic workaround for his status. Of course, he's not to be blamed for it. It's not anything that he did wrong. It's not of his own doing. But because his mother had not secured it yet, he was considered a mamzer. But multiple courts over multiple years were unable to find any grounds for altering his status. Ravavadi himself reviewed the case, and despite his most valiant efforts, he was unable to find any room for upending his status. And then the politicians got involved. Defense Minister Moshe Dayan approached Rav Gorin, 
who was then the chief rabbi of the IDF, and he asked him to find a workaround. The prime minister, Golda Meir, publicly called for changing the Alchet status of the Linger kids as well. And Rav Gorin convened the court. And the identities of the other members of this court are still classified until today. No one knows who they are. And they concocted an opinion that rescinded the bastard status from the Langer children. And the argument of this opinion is that the original husband's conversion was invalid. And therefore, Chava Langer was never really married to her first husband and thus was perfectly allowed to marry Otto Langer. Now, the details of this decision were also classified and were not publicly distributed. And against all halachic conventions, Rav Goren refrained from sharing his reasonings with any of the other previous courts that had ruled that their status, the Langer children's status as Mamzerim, is immovable. Now, I want to stress, Rabbi Gorin was a bona fide Torah scholar. But his ruling and the way that he handled it is truly inexplicable. Some have speculated that his rationale was that he wanted to make, or was willing to make, one halachic concession in order to ensure that the secular establishment does not revoke the status quo deal arrangement wholesale and institute civil marriage as opposed to rabbinic marriage. Maybe the argument is that it's better to bend the halacha a bit, in one case, to preserve the independent authority of the rabbinate. But Rav Avadya didn't buy it, and he lambasted this decision, and he argued stridently that the original conversion of Avraham Borakovsky was in fact valid, and thus the subsequent children were mamzerim. But the case was not yet finalized because Rav Goren, his decision was him operating as the IDF chief rabbi and it was insufficient to allow the Langer children to marry and what would eventually happen with these children hinged upon who won the election for chief rabbi in 1973. And Rav Goren was gunning for that post to be Ashkenazi chief rabbi, and the current Sephardic chief rabbi, Yitzchak Nisim, he was running for re-election. And both of them were committed to adopting a more pragmatic, more tolerant, if you will, approach in halakhic matters, and both were committed to sign on to the dubious Langer reclassification. It was this controversy that spurred Ravavadya to submit his candidacy and to run against the incumbent and to seek the post of Sephardic chief rabbi. This story has somewhat of a tragic conclusion. Ravavadya indeed won the election and became chief rabbi. And even at the celebration of his election that occurred at the home of the president and was graced with various politicians and movers and shakers, the Prime Minister, Golda Meir, and the Defense Minister, Moshe Dayan, began to pressure Hamavadia to find a leniency for the Langer children. 
Rav Goren was eager to fulfill his campaign pledge and certify the spurious workaround, but Rav Avadia refused to play ball. He insisted on following halachic protocol and presenting any new opinions, any new evidence, any new arguments to the previous courts that had ruled on this matter. A month after the election, the matter went public. Ravavadya told the press that his Ashkenazic counterpart, Rav Goren, had issued an ultimatum and a threat and said to him, unless you join the new court to examine the Langer case without preconditions, I'm going to cut off all contact with you and I'm going to refuse to partake in a joint inauguration ceremony. Rav Goren, for his part, denied the allegation, but four days later, on the 19th of November, 1972, Rav Goren made a unilateral move and contravening precedent, he assembled nine unidentified rabbis who signed off on the ruling and both Langer children were ruled to not be Mamzerim and both of them were married hastily to their fiancés in a joint ceremony attended by Defense Minister Moshe Dayan. It is universally believed that Rav Goren, though of course a great Torah scholar, was guided by political considerations that trumped the general accepted halachic protocol and he acted in this fashion. As a result of this decision by the rabbinate, Rabbi Yashiv, he actually resigned the rabbinate. Now, the ironic postscript of the story is that the original husband of Chava Langer, Avraham Borakovsky, he sued Rav Goren for claiming that his conversion was invalid. And ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled that Rav Goren's decision regarding the Langer children, though reliant on questioning the conversion of Borakovsky, did not invalidate his conversion. And in fact, Rav Goren was required to pay Borakovsky's legal costs. The Langer controversy and the tension between him and his Ashkenazic counterpart was only the beginning of Ravavadia's tenure as chief rabbi. Another major crisis loomed. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War erupted. And of course, we know the story. Israel suffered major losses. And Rav Avadia, in his capacity as chief rabbi, made multiple trips to the front lines to inspire the troops, to encourage the troops, to bless them. But after the Yom Kippur War was finished, a major halachic crisis arose. There were around a thousand soldiers who were missing. And the wives of those who were married are now considered agunot, i.e. women whose husbands are missing, and they're unable to get remarried until the situation is settled. Now, these are some of the most difficult questions that a halakhic authority could ever face. And historically, these questions were always sent to the greatest sages of the time, and Rav Avadi was selected, and not the Ashkenazic chief rabbi Rav Goren, to try to find heterim, to try to find halakhic reasonings to permit these poor presumed widows to indeed remarry 
despite not having evidence or hard evidence that their husbands indeed perished in the war. The consensus was that Ravavadya had the halachic credibility more than his counterparts. He had never bent the rules in the past and therefore he was given the job of trying to permit these women to remarry. And the problem was immense. Many were missing entirely. Many recovered corpses were completely unidentifiable. What about soldiers presumed killed as prisoners of war? Yet to gather evidence, dental records, medical records, interview their comrades, try to examine pictures and other evidence. What about their fingerprints, dog tags? If you find a dog tag on a dead, charred, unrecognizable body, is that sufficient evidence to permit his wife to remarry? And the biggest dread in halacha is what happens when there is a husband presumed dead, you allow his wife to remarry, and his wife remarries, or his ex-wife or his former wife remarries, and then the husband turns out he's alive and he waltzes in. That's, of course, a terrible disaster. And Rabavadya is tasked with trying to solve these questions. And he spends months going through case by case, carefully, meticulously, painstakingly interviewing witnesses, examining remains, doing all the investigative work to try and permit these women to remarry. Ravavadya testified before his passing, I have permitted hundreds of women whose husbands were MIA to remarry, and not a single one of those husbands ever returned. This was a responsibility that every rabbi, of course, takes with the utmost seriousness. But this was something that he excelled at. And he really invested his heart in trying to find halachic grounds to allow a woman to remarry. At his funeral, his son, Rabbi David Yosef, told the following story. He said that the rabbi... Chachamavadya wasn't feeling well. And they went to the hospital to have him examined. And the doctor said, you suffered a mild heart attack. And you right away need to have an emergency operation to install a stent and to open up your arteries. So Ravadi says, okay, I'm okay to do this operation, but I have to go home first and I need three hours at home. And only then will I come back to the hospital to have this procedure. But they said to him, no, you can't leave. This is, a, this is a medical emergency. You have to right away have this done. No, I have to go home. Why do you have to go home? Because I'm in the middle of writing a halachic response, a tshuva, to free an aguna, to free a woman whose husband is presumed dead. And what happens if I go under the knife? And who knows if I'll actually emerge from this operation Okay. And what's going to be with this woman? I want to go home. I want to finish the argument. I want to sign, seal, and deliver the letter permitting the woman to remarry. And then I'll come back. And then I will have that surgery. After 9-11, there was a tragic episode of a woman whose husband worked on the 104th floor of the North Tower in the Twin Towers in Lower Manhattan. And, of course, 
there's no remains of the body. And therefore, again, the Talmud is very clear. If you don't have remains, you just assume, unless you know otherwise, definitively, you assume that the husband's still alive and the woman cannot remarry. So Chachamavadia went through emails and phone records and spoke to engineers and found a permission for her to remarry. Now, Rabavadia had a very productive and fruitful decade as chief rabbi. Of course, he dealt with all kinds of halachic problems and questions and issued many notable and interesting halachic decisions. Perhaps the most interesting question that he faced was the question of the halachic permissibility to release terrorists in exchange for hostages. During the Entebbe raid in 1976, there's a hundred Jews who are held hostage and the hostage takers say, we're going to start shooting the hostages unless you release terrorists. Are you allowed to release terrorists with blood in their hands? You presume they'll go back to their bloodshedding ways if you release them? Are you allowed to release them in exchange for hostages? Very difficult question. And the government, headed by Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, they went to the chief rabbi, they went to Rav Avadia and said to him, okay, is this allowed? Is this permitted? Or is this not allowed? And as Rav Avadia is deliberating the various angles of this question, Chacham Ovadia has a visitor, it's the prime minister, and he says to him, I want to let you know that actually we succeeded in rescuing the hostages and killing off all the hijackers and all the terrorists in Uganda, and that decision ultimately was not implemented upon. In the 1970s, Rav Ovadia ruled that the Ethiopian Jews were considered halachically Jewish, and he campaigned to have an effort to bring the Ethiopian Jews to Israel, and he is widely credited as the force or as the primary force in indeed unleashing the wave of migration of Ethiopian Jews to Israel. That decision actually was somewhat controversial. Some of his halachic contemporaries thought that maybe there was more of a question as to the legitimacy of the Jewish standing of the Ethiopian Jews. Another landmark position of Chacham Avadia is the question of land for peace. As chief rabbi, Rav Avadia ruled in favor of ceding land of Israel in exchange for peace with the Arabs. And this is based upon the idea that to prevent bloodshed, that supersedes the mitzvah of maintaining territory. So he was in favor of the 1979 Camp David Accords with Egypt, even though it called for ceding much of the land, much of the territory that was seized in the Six-Day War. He was also in favor of other land for peace agreements. He was in favor of the 1994 peace deal with Jordan. He believed that Israel should try to strike a deal with Syria, even though in all likelihood that would require seeing the Golan Heights. Rav Ovadia supported, or perhaps we can say more accurately, he did not oppose the Oslo Accords, at least initially, the ultimately unsuccessful framework for a peaceful resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, Chacham Avadia was opposed 
to the unilateral Gaza disengagement of 2005 because the land was given up, was forfeited, and there was no reciprocal exchange of peace. In 1976, there was a law proposed in the Knesset to permit abortions in the land of Israel. Of course, that's a very contentious and very sensitive subject. And Rabbi tried to use all his political clout to have the law dropped. Ultimately, his lobbying efforts failed, and instead he shifted his focus to publicizing the Torah's view on these laws, and he vigorously supported organizations that help women who want to have abortions due to financial reasons to help alleviate their financial stress and thereby sidestep the need for abortions. In fact, he told one such organization called Efrat that you could call me anytime, day or night, I want to help you and assist you in this important and vital task. Rav Avadia also used his bully pulpit as chief rabbi to make PSAs about safe driving, which is something that anyone who has visited Israel knows That's something that was and still is sorely needed. When Ravavadi was elected chief rabbi in 1973, it was intended to be a five-year term, and Ravavadi would have presumably ran for re-election and most likely would have won again and again and again. But some of his detractors sought to curb his influence, and they brought a law to the Knesset that sought 10-year term limits for chief rabbis. Ironically, this decision to limit Ravavadia's influence ultimately unleashed him and increased his national impact many times over. Once he left the office of chief rabbi, he had a political party that was founded called, called Shas, and that became one of the most important vehicles for him to impact the nation and the world. In the most recent election that we've had, of course, we've had all kinds of elections in Israel recently, but the third largest Jewish party in the Knesset is Shas. And Shas has been a major force in Israeli politics since it was founded in 1984, both on a national and on a local level. Shas was founded to fill a particular demographic niche, namely that of religious Sephardic Jews. It's important to note that even within secular Jews, there's a big difference between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews. The Sephardic world did not suffer the same effects of secularization and systemic assimilation that the Ashkenazi Jewry had undergone. And thus, Sephardic Jews tend to be more traditional, tend to have more of a conscious drawing them to observance and to tradition. And thus, although Shas is nominally tailored towards religious Sephardic Jews, their base and their support comes from many non-religious but traditional Jews who want to support the Sephardic and the religious parties. Now, initially, Rav Avadia was reluctant to get into politics. 
but he was ultimately convinced that this could be used as a major vehicle to spread Torah at the land. Of course, with political clout comes funding and all kinds of tools and implements that could be used to establish schools and shuls and mikvos and Torah all over the land. And he agreed to head this party. And in 1984, that's the first national election where Shas was on the ticket. Erobavadia vigorously campaigned. He crisscrossed the country to try to garner support. He held rallies. They adopted the slogan, Lahachzir Atarali Oshna, to restore the crown to its former glory. That, of course, was his credo. And it was used, of course, in a halachic, a religious sense in the past. And now it was being used to promote the agenda of Shas to restore Sephardic pride and to infuse the land with Torah. Now in Israel, it's a parliamentary system, but there is a certain minimum threshold that unless you cross this electoral threshold, the achuza chasima, your votes don't count. And there was concern, a new party doesn't really have a proven base, are they going to cross the threshold? But ultimately, there was a stunning electoral win. They garnered four seats, and they have been a Knesset juggernaut ever since. Now, although Chacham did not spend much time every day managing the politics and the political agenda, he guided the party. He directed the party. He would make the difficult decisions, and he would leverage it to use it as a tool to teach Torah, to spread Torah, and to spread Sephardic culture throughout the land. And the impact that Shas has had over the last 35 years or so is absolutely stunning. The first order of business was to establish a network of Torah schools to afford every Sephardic child in the country access to a Torah education. The government provided some funding, and Chacham agreed, together with other Sephardic Torah giants, to fundraise the difference. And these schools have been a fabulous success. Over the 30 years from the founding of Shas until its passing in 2013, this network of schools grew to 650 elementary schools with 40,000 students enrolled and 300 preschools with around 13,000 students. Today, these schools, the school for girls, are known as Bet Margalit after Ravavadi's wife, and the boys' schools are today called Bet Yosef after Chacham Ovadia. Shas also spearheaded the establishment of hundreds of synagogues throughout the country, started thousands of Torah classes for adults, built over a thousand mikvot, started after school clubs and summer camps and day camps and other forms of enrichment for the public. Now, Chacham Ovadi's influence was not limited to the land of Israel. During his tenure as chief rabbi, and in the decade that followed, he made many trips to the United States, and he would visit and encourage 
Jewish communities in Brooklyn and Deal, New Jersey, in California. He would travel to Mexico, Argentina, France, other countries in, in Europe, Panama, Brazil. And he would go there. And of course, he was treated like a rock star, like a celebrity. They'd have the kids all dressed up nicely, lining the sides of the streets. Everyone would try to crane their neck to see him, to glimpse at him, to kiss his hand, to get a blessing from him, to get a smack from him, as we shall see in a little bit. And he would speak, and he would encourage, and he would inspire the communities. But he would also use his clout to try to lobby and influence various countries and governments to help support the interests of Israel and of the Jews in their land. So in 1979, he went to Iran. He actually visited Egypt and had productive meetings with Hosni Mubarak, the president of Egypt. He went to Syria and tried to lobby on behalf of the Jewish people when he met President Ronald Reagan. Reagan was absolutely enamored by him and in the Sephardic tradition, kissed his hand. So his influence indeed really spanned the world over. And within the land of Israel, of course, his efforts were ubiquitous and were everywhere. Prior to the high holidays, Chachamavagia would headline dozens of rallies. They called them repentance rallies in towns and cities throughout the land. They would rent out a soccer stadium and you have a whole gathering with the objective of achieving communal repentance. And Chacham would speak, and they would have the mayors of the town present, and they would have several events each night. Chacham would be shuttled from place to place by a helicopter. And his speeches would entertain the masses, would inspire the masses, they would pray together. He would bless them all to merit to a wonderful new year. And he would have these marathon events, and he gets home, and it's one in the morning, two in the morning, and he would run to go study to fulfill his daily quota. In the words of his son, he would study and run to pursue study like an alcoholic runs to wine. And in every initiative that Marano Vadya undertook, he sought to restore the crown of Sephardic Jewry to its former glory. There's one more area in which this was true. In Israel, Sephardic Jews are heavily outnumbered, or certainly were at the beginning of the state, by the European Ashkenazi Jews. And sad as it is to say, they were often discriminated against. If you think living in Israel today is difficult, think about what it was like in the 1950s. There is economic austerity. A huge percentage of the state budget is dedicated to defense. There's very fragile security. The economy is not developed. They don't have foreign patrons like they have today. And the state is absorbing hundreds of thousands of penniless immigrants. And the Sephardic community in Israel is subject to systemic discrimination and marginalization, to a certain degree, are being treated like second-class citizens. And there were also several tragic atrocities perpetrated against vulnerable Sephardic emigres. 
in one instant known as the Yemenite children affair, you have young women, mostly from Yemen, they had their young babies and toddlers taken away from them, kidnapped in hospitals, and they were told that their children had died. In truth, they were just kidnapped and given to adoptive parents, mostly childless Holocaust survivors. This is a horrific, unimaginable tragedy and atrocity. And we know today, and it's been formally acknowledged by the state, that somewhere between 1,500 and 5,000 children were thus kidnapped. And again, it's hard for us to talk about this or to think about this, but it's true. And this is not conspiracy theories. This is not tinfoil hat stuff. We know today that there were medical experiments done on some of the kidnapped babies. And some of the kidnapped babies actually died from undernourishment. And some of them were administered various medicines and that caused them to die as well. We also know today that some of these poor Sephardic children were subject to post-mortem examinations and autopsies that were carried out on these children, and then they were buried in mass graves. Apparently, there was an interest by some doctors to research why Yemenites in general, have such low figures of heart disease. And in some instances, again, this is hard to talk about, after these children were mistreated and after they died, their hearts were removed to examine why is these hearts, like why are the hearts of these Yemenite people, why are they so bulletproof to heart disease? Now, again, these atrocities are really hard to think about, but we know for sure they happened, and we know this was acknowledged by multiple government investigations, and we know that there's hundreds of thousands of documents relevant to these testimonies and evidence that's placed under lock and is classified and will not be available to the public until the year 2071. So terrible things happen, particularly to Sephardic vulnerable people. They're being discriminated and even subject to such horrific atrocities. There were also spiritual atrocities perpetrated against these people. The Yemenites traditionally would have long and thin peyote side lots, and there's been documentation of the forced shaving of the side lots from young Yemenite children. And they were told, they were indoctrinated to say, hey, this is Israel, everyone's Jewish. You don't need to worry so much about Torah, about tradition. So we have these atrocities and we have various forms of economic and social and cultural marginalizations. And I have to say that the situation today is a lot better than it used to be. But sadly, there still exists today at least the perception of systemic discrimination against Sephardic communities. And it's sad to say, but this is not limited to the secular authorities, even in the religious world as well, in Ashkenazi-run religious schools and yeshivos, the Sephardic students are often discriminated against. 
they, of course, did not have the pedigree of the Lithuanian yeshiva world. They didn't speak Yiddish. They weren't associated with the customs. And oftentimes, the best yeshivos would not accept Sephardic students. And even if they did, they had or have to face quotas, you know, will only take 10% or 20% or 30% of the student body to be Sephardic. And of course, that is discrimination. So some of the idea of restoring the crown of the Sephardic world to its previous glory was about trying to attack this discrimination head on. Chamavadia sought to restore the glory. We have the most glorious and storied history. The Rambam, the Rif, Alfasi, the Bet Yosef. We have giants of Torah from the Sephardic world. We can build the most glorious and prestigious institutions on our own. We can take care of our own. We can unite our political power and become a force to be reckoned with. And Chacham Avadi himself really embodied this pride. You go over the land of Israel and you see in all kinds of small little shops, huge pictures of Chacham Avadia. He was someone that the Sephardic world, everyone, could take tremendous pride in. What pride to say that arguably the greatest Torah scholar in the world is one of ours. And he also had this magnetically charismatic personality. He was very sharp and witty, great sense of humor. He was also cultured. He liked music and poetry. And when people would come to him, it was an experience. You know, he wore the traditional Sephardic rabbinic regalia, the bedecked glima and the mitznefet. And he had these cool, suave sunglasses that, of course, he wore because of an eye condition, but it kind of added to his mystique and to his appeal. And people would go to him. And he would lovingly smack them on the face. And anyone that he liked, he would do this to. And when I say anyone, I mean presidents, prime ministers, Netanyahu, Shimon Perez, who he was quite close with. And he would slap them on the right cheek and quote a verse from Proverbs chapter 3, Orech yamim biyamino, lawn days on the right. And then he would slap them on the left cheek. Bismolo oshav on the left, wealth and honor. And people who got a loving slap from Chacham Avadia, they would cherish it the rest of their lives. And he became this figure that's beloved and perhaps we can even say idolized by his followers. And he, just his existence and his personality inspired and imbued a sense of pride in the Sephardic masses. We have this crown. We're not second-class citizens we can be inspired by this great and transformative leader. He lived a difficult life. He lived a life of pain and tragedy. His wife passed away at a relatively young age. A year before he passed, his eldest son, whom he had some issues with, passed away as well. On his gravestone it says, Chachamavadya, who was oppressed with suffering, a few weeks before his passing, he was on hand to partake in the coronation of his son, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef, as Sephardic chief rabbi. And on the third day of Cheshvan, in the end of 
2013, exactly seven years ago today, Ravavad Yosef passed away after a few months of dealing with a variety of illnesses. Even though it only took four hours from when he passed until his funeral, the estimated crowd participating in his funeral is just shy of a million people that came to pay their respects to this great leader. And what a legacy he left. Giant of Torah, memorizing it all by heart. A leader who is trailblazing, whose impact, whose indelible impact transformed the Jewish world. And we could even say, today, a community that was disjointed, a community that really was reeling from a very difficult century of upheaval is now strong and united to a certain extent, of course. You know, Jews being united is always a challenge. But united and and a, a political force and a religious force and a cultural and societal force, largely the product of his doing. There's a verse in the book of Malachi that is talking about the attributes of true Torah giants. And I think it could be applied quite justly to him. The verse says, Torah temet, There was true Torah in his mouth, and there was no iniquity found in his lips. With peace and with uprightness, he walked with me, I with God. And many people he brought back from iniquity. Some have suggested that the greatest influencer to bring Jews back to Torah over the last hundred years was none other than Chacham Avadia. And even though he didn't necessarily portray himself as such a person, he succeeded in bringing back masses of Jews who had strayed away from Torah and strayed away from tradition. He succeeded in bringing them back. For the lips of the priest will guard knowledge and Torah you should seek from his mouth for he is akin to an angel of God. I want to read a quote from the superb art school biography of Hamavadya that really tries to capture his legacy. Quote, It is quite possible that no other individual in recent Jewish history caused as much of a sea change among his people as did Haravavadya. He was single-handedly responsible for the incredible transformation of Sephardic Jewry from a community that was practically left for dead with most of its members abandoning religion entirely or holding on to a mere modicum of observance to a burgeoning force in the land of Israel and throughout the world. Chacham Avadia was indeed one of the great men of Jewish history who left an indelible transformation on the entire Jewish world. Don't forget to email me. My email address is rabbiwalbejima.com. Check out all the other great work of Torch. Our website is torchweb.org. Of course, if you want to support our work, there is the option of making a donation on the website, torchweb.org. In the description of this podcast and in the description of every podcast, you have a link, a direct link if you want to support our work. And we deeply appreciate that. Of course, check out my other podcasts, 
the links to which you could also find in the description. Thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwalbajima.com.